Hello, welcome to this bonus episode of Ocean Matters. I'm Izzy Clark, the producer of this series from the Bertarelli Foundation, and these bonus podcasts are a chance for us to revisit topics and explore extra content from the main episodes. In episode nine, we explored the magical world of plankton and how they keep our ocean healthy. When Helen spoke with Joanna Harris, we also discovered that plankton is a vital food source for manta rays. So we decided to dedicate this bonus episode focusing on these magnificent animals. What are the different species of manta rays? What's their life history? And how do we protect them from current threats? Who better to speak to than Guy Stevens, CEO and co-founder of the Manta Trust? He kicked things off by telling me about his most memorable moment with the manta rays. Oh, so, so many great memories. Yes, I've, I've spent the last 20 plus years of my life uh, studying manta rays and I've been fortunate to travel all over the world, diving with them, free diving with them. But absolutely, I would have to say the, the most special encounters have always happened in the Maldives at a very small, shallow bay. And... You know, it it truly is one of the most amazing wildlife spectacles on the planet. You're surrounded by sometimes uh, 250 manta rays, each of them sort of four meters in size, and they're all spiraling around inches away from you, foraging on their on their prey. It is a, just a, an amazing experience to be in the water with these animals, and it's something that I I treasure every time I get to experience it. Yeah, I bet. So these are the reef manta rays that you're talking about here, but we also have oceanic manta rays. So what's the difference between the two different species? Yes, well, I mean, uh, the name kind of is, is is a useful clue to understanding more about them. As the, the reef manta name suggests, these are often associated with tropical coral reefs um, along continental shelves, so more slightly more inshore. And then the oceanic mantas, they're found in more oceanic environments, so usually with deeper water below them. And they also grow a lot larger. So the oceanic mantas can grow to seven meters in wingspan, whereas the reef mantas on average about four meters so significantly smaller yeah and we heard in episode nine about how important plankton are for manta rays and they travel such long distances for these feeding events so do you see a difference in how far reef manta rays might travel for food compared to the oceanic manta rays I mean the short answer is we don't know um, okay. a, a lot of the the current research, just because they're much easier to study, uh, has been undertaken on the reef mantas. You know, we can we can get in the water with them predictably. We can track them more easily with satellite technology, tagging, for example. Um, so we have a pretty good idea of, of the, the movement ecology of the reef mantas. We know that they are more localized, so they tend to visit the same sites again and again. And these are often within tens or maybe a few hundred kilometers apart. And we suspect that the oceanic mantas are traveling further in search of foraging opportunities. However, we're not entirely sure. And in some of the the studies that have been done on oceanic mantas suggest that actually they don't travel that far either at all. It's just that they're in a slightly more offshore habitat that we are less easily able to find them in. Ah, okay, I see. And so 
in in general, when we talk about a manta's life history, you know, how do they spend their time? Well, if we, you know, maybe we could go on a sort of a, a, a year or a lifetime journey for a, for a reef manta if we use that as an example. So what we, we now think happens is the, the females give birth to the little pups, little baby mantas, which are live born. They only give birth to one at a time. They probably do this in uh, sheltered lagoons, maybe at nighttime. Nobody's ever seen a manta ray in the wild giving birth. Um, but we find these little pups uh, about one and a half meters in wingspan when they're born, one and a half to two meters. We see them hanging out in these shallow protected lagoons, uh, shallow estuarine areas or mangroves. So the little pups are in these, these protected areas. And then as they grow, they start to search more and more out of their little sheltered nursery areas. They go into larger movements to find richer foraging grounds that exposes them to more risk, probably from predation, but the rewards of doing so outweigh the risk. So as they grow up, they spend more time socializing with other animals, aggregation sites like cleaning stations, and they move between um, areas that they've learned are important for foraging and social interactions and cleaning behavior. And so they'll spend their time moving around these locations within their, their habitat, looking for mates, looking for food, avoiding predators. And if food gets scarce, then they can travel larger distances in search of new foraging opportunities. And they'll do that for 40, 50 years or so. We see the same manta rays again and again uh, over the decades and we think that they can live for for at least that that long and there's there's a bit of mystery there's a lot of research going into actually how they reproduce and whether a female manta might actually have the ability to store sperm is that right <laughs> yes and it's something that i've been you know, hypothesizing, thinking about for the last 10 years or so. Um, we don't know definitively that mantas can do this, but we know that there are other shark and ray species that do uh, similar, uh, undertake similar strategies. And the theory goes that if you're going to go through a long gestation and you're going to then attract lots of males, it may be a wise thing to do to mate with multiple males and store the sperm and then the sperm can compete inside the female um, to actually fertilize the, the egg that is available. So you have competition among the males before mating, and then you have potentially competition of, if you like, the, um, the lucky males that got to actually uh, mate with the female, you have competition of their sperm uh, inside the female's body over the egg. And it also means that if the female decides to, um, Again, we know that the other sharks can do this and other rays. She can store that sperm and wait until uh, conditions are really ideal for reproducing. And then she can utilize it to fertilize her egg. And we think that they can do that possibly for up to two years. Oh, wow. I mean, that that is an incredible reproductive strategy. So as someone that spends so much time researching manta rays, how are you able to study them and identify them and, you know, work out more and more about how they spend their time in the ocean? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And we're very lucky in the Manta research world that our study subjects are uniquely identifiable. Every single manta ray, um, it's born with a pattern of black spots on a predominantly white belly. So these are large kind of, you know, diamond-shaped animals which usually have a sort of a, 
a browny black dorsal surface with some patterning. And then on the bellies, often they're white with these series of spots and uh, squiggly lines and patches and so on. And they don't change um, from the from the minute the animal's born until they die. So we can take pictures of them and we can put these into a database and we can use that to uh, to identify the different individuals within our population. Gosh, that's amazing. It's basically like their, their own unique fingerprints and, and working it out like that. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, what what are some of the things that, that you're looking out for when you are studying these manta rays? When you get into studying a species, you, you have all these you know, questions about their biology, their ecology, and those are all fascinating. And some of them are important purely just from a scientific knowledge perspective. But what I am trying to focus on are questions that can address some of the threats that these species are facing. And those threats in the form especially of you know, human uh, sourced impacts. So degradation of the reefs or the impact of the climate crisis or fishing, uh, etc. So a lot of our research is sort of centered around trying to address those questions. And an example of that would be, are manta rays reproducing less as the climate might be changing. The oceans potentially are becoming less productive as they warm. This reduces the amount of food availability for the manta rays. Less food means less opportunities to go through those heavily energy-intensive gestations. Because we can record the individuals, we can also record when those individuals are pregnant. We can see the, the big bellies on the females. We can also record the number of pups swimming around in in the nursery areas each year, how many of those are new, how many pregnancies is the population having. And then we can start to map that or correlate that to environmental productivity. So how much plankton is there in the water? And by doing that, we can start to see if mantas are reproducing less as uh, the oceans may be becoming less productive. Yeah. And, and, And there's a lot to compete with here. You know, we've, as you mentioned, there's climate change, there's pressures from fishing. So what would you say is the biggest threat to manta rays or is it more that it's lots of things all mixed in together? Yeah, well, long term, I guess, sort of death by a thousand cuts, as the saying goes. However, fishing, fishing, fishing. You know, we have animals being targeted directly. So this is where you may have um, people actively going out searching for mantas and their relatives to, to harvest them they will eat the meat, although it's really low quality and it wouldn't usually even be advertised on a menu if you were to eat it as manta. It would just be generally dried fish or something like that. But most people don't target them for their meat, but they do target them for their gill plates. Um, so these these large uh, mouthed animals that sieve zooplankton from the water with these uh, filter-like pads in their mouths, these are sought after in Asian um, medicines. And unfortunately, where that's happened, uh, we've seen population declines of up to 90%, which is, you know, obviously extremely concerning for for the long-term survival of these species in those locations. Equally, and if not possibly greater, are the threats from bycatch. So this is where mantas are being caught unintentionally in other target species fisheries, And the animals are not necessarily even landed. They're just chucked back overboard. But unfortunately, what we're seeing is that the animals uh, often have extremely high mortality, uh, even if they're released from these nets. So you might have a net that, you know, catches several thousand tuna uh, in a purse fishery. 
catches maybe a dozen or two dozen mantas or, or their relatives, the devil rays, and they might be thrown back overboard. But we're realizing that maybe their large proportion of them die within a few hours or days of them being released. So, you know, that's just as impactful as targeting the animals themselves. Long term, the other big threat is, is the climate, um, the climate crisis. You know, we, we know that the oceans are warming. We know that this will reduce the availability of their, their prey. Uh, we, we see it changing the monsoon systems that drive upwelling and productivity. And so that for me in the longer term is the, is the biggest threat, I think, to these animals. Yeah, absolutely. How is the Manta Trust trying to fight all of these different threats? Every location is is often a unique approach. So if we, for example, we know that there might be a big problem with targeted fisheries in a specific country, we would we would look to try and work with all the stakeholders. But often it, you need to go into the communities that are directly having the impact on these animals, work with them to find alternatives. You often need the kind of stick approach as well from having governance from above to try and protect these animals legislatively. But you also need to work with the communities and try and find ways of protecting them from the bottom as well. So it's a very slow and often frustrating process of of positive change. And finally, if you could find out anything about manta rays, what would it be? Are there any more mysteries that really need solving and that you'd love to sort of uncover? Yeah, so many. In fact, the, the longer I study these animals, the, the more questions you have, I guess that's, that's <laughs> yeah. normal with, with anything, right? Um, but I would love to be able to, to follow a manta ray um, when it moves away from the shallow reefs. And uh, I would love to know how many mantas there are in the world. We don't really have a good estimate of what the global population is. And if we don't have that, it's very difficult to quantify how close they are to extinction or how threatened they are. Because, you know, we know that they're being fished in, in X numbers a year in certain places, but we don't really know how many are out there to begin with. And that, that's a really important conservation question to address. Guy Stevens from the Manta Trust. And you can find out more about his work at mantatrust.org. Next time on Ocean Matters, we'll be diving into an iconic species turtles amongst other things we'll be learning about how these incredible animals navigate huge distances to tiny islands in the middle of the ocean i'm izzy clark and ocean matters is a fresh air production for the bertarelli foundation follow or subscribe now for free wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode <laughs>